see the last paragraph. Hello, <coughs> Terry. Uh, why don't you observe? Adam Harishan, first man, Atzma, he himself, first man himself, Kach Karolai. So was the events of his life. What does this mean, so were the events of his life? Uh, Ramesh Chaim Litzata has explained that uh, sometimes we establish a particular pattern by which we are to learn through different things that happen in our lives. In other words, it's not necessarily so that there is only one way of learning and coming closer to appreciating the truth and the values and so on and so forth, but we pointed out that there can be various ways and ultimately the decider, the decision maker of how we ought to learn, we are ultimately the greatest decision maker of how we ought to learn. If we, if we, uh, if we are stubborn and we insist that the way we know how to do it is the correct way, so then there'll be a learning pattern that will be, um, that will be styled after that kind of a stubbornness. And then we'll learn through the path that we want. Um, if we're not that way and we're more open to learning in many different ways, so many opportunities will, will come up. And this is very analogous to what the sages tell us. That the way a person wants to go is the way that he is, a path is made before him to walk. Now, under normal circumstances, people usually understand this saying of our sages to merely mean that if I want something very much, God is going to help me. And that's quite true. That's exactly what it means. But it, more than that, it also means the particular path that a person wants to take is the one that God says, if that's the path that you want to take, that's the one that you're going to have to walk to ultimately learn because you've, you've tied yourself to that path and you'll have to learn through the experiences of the path that you've, you've made a decision that that's the one that you want to stick to. So, God lets him walk that path and learn in that path that he's established for himself. And this is what Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat is referring to here. Again, the beginning of the line, Halo Siri, we can observe this concept that man establishes for himself the particular learning path Adam Arishan, first man, Atzma, himself, Kach Karalai, so it occurred in his life. And I want you to understand this particular issue very well. For were it to be that God would have only created the world with the option to do that which is right to do, without the negative side, so then our thoughts would not in- entertain the negative at all. And then we would be able to understand God's uniqueness and oneness in the fullness of, of what it's all about. As we explained before. But because God did create the possibility for evil, our minds could entertain many possibilities. And because it could entertain many possibilities, we could also come to appreciate 
the uh, the uniqueness of God's approach. Now, essentially, all that Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat is saying over here, and I'm not going to go into this because we really dealt with this a number of weeks ago, all Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat is saying over here is that the notion that first man had no Yetzirah, that he had no negative inclination, is false. Because by the very fact that we know that he did something which was incorrect, it had to be that he had the possibility. And it had to be that he entertained the possibility to do something incorrect if he in fact did it. I mean, to assume that he had no pull, or he had no direction, or he had no thought, or he had no enticement whatsoever, and he just happened to stumble upon this wrong thing, you know, like the apple, it wasn't an apple, but the fruit landed up between his teeth, that's ridiculous. The fact that we see that a mistake happened gives us reason to believe that there was a challenge here, and if there was a challenge here, that means that there was a possibility to go one way or the other. Now, to go one way or the other meant you could either listen to God or not listen to God. If there was, in fact, an enticement or an inclination to not to listen to God, by definition, that means that there was the creation of the possibility of evil already in the world. Because, then, as we learned before, as, as Rav Meshachayim Latzata said before, in very vivid terms, which we don't necessarily relate to on all levels, doing that which is opposite of what God says is automatically something which is negative. You're going the wrong way. Right? So the fact that other Mauritian was tempted to do something that was against uh, God's will, and in fact did something against God's will, means that the possibility to follow a negative direction existed for first man, which means that the option was created. Why was the option created? So Rav Meshachayim Latzata points out that the option was created because through all of the options available to man, man could use that to finally appreciate God's way. What do I mean by that? Adam Arishan had before him the option to, to listen or not to listen. Right? So he thought it was smarter not to listen, for whatever reason which we explained last week. But the moment he ingested that which he ate, physically and spiritually, he realized that he made an awful mistake. So at the moment that he realized his mistake, he now learned something about God that before wasn't clear. Before he ate, he was tempted not to listen, and he thought that his scheme, his particular way, would be the right way. So there was a certain miscalculation of the wisdom of God. You know, God said it one way, and I think that I can manage another way. But a moment after he made the mistake, he realized it was a mistake, and an awful mistake. So the very fact that there was the possibility to do evil, a moment after that possibility is done, there is already a lesson to be learned in it. Right? Now, it's not always that instant that we learn right away. But what Ramashraham Latzat is pointing out is that the creation of the possibility leaves open an, a learning pattern. Because if the possibility is there, if I do that which was the possibility, I come to realize that it was a mistake. So before I didn't think it was a mistake, now I do think it's a mistake. So who gets the last laugh? And maybe I shouldn't say the last laugh, but before I thought I was smarter, and now I come to realize that God was smarter. So the fact that the possibility was created has a profit or has a benefit even in the event, even in the event that the person doesn't listen initially. Do you follow what I'm saying? In other words, the possibility is created, 
Now, obviously, if a person could approach the directive and and keep the directive without breaking the directive, a person would come to appreciate the directive that way too. Because by towing the line of trust, as we explained last week, first man would have come to appreciate the reason for the restriction. But being that he didn't tow the line of trust, and he couldn't see himself appreciating it, and he went into it, there was what to learn even from his breaking it. So on, e- from, on either way, there was a way to learn. By listening to God and trusting God, he would have learned the, and appreciated the command eventually, because by holding himself back and trusting, he would have gotten a better understanding of why God restricted him for that measure of time. But on the other hand, by not listening, all wasn't lost either. There's a pattern to learn that way also. It's a pattern which sometimes is a very painful pattern because when we make mistakes, there's usually pain that comes together with the mistake, but we come to learn something through it. So what, uh, what Rav Meshachayim Lutzat is saying is that to learn, the, to learn the lesson that what God says is good and what God says not to do is not good, uh, that lesson could have been learned either way, by listening or by not listening. Right? Either way, it could have been learned. Adamarishan put himself in a pattern that he was going to learn through the experimentation of not listening. Right? This is what this is the example that Rav Moshe Chaim Latzata is trying to point out here. Okay, I'll take questions on this very soon, but this is the example that he's trying to point out. Okay, now. Adamarishan definitely had a perception of what was negative. In other words, he, he, he was playing with the options. Should I do it because, because I think that it's the right thing to do? Or shouldn't I do it because God told me not to do it and obviously what God says is the best for me? Adamarishan was wrangling with it back and forth. He had that struggle. Vahainu right? Because he had in front of him this tree of knowledge that that God had prohibited him from eating. And even so, But nevertheless, he was able to go through a rationale of seeing that it was good to the physical appearance, it was good to his sense of eating, it was good for his it, it, w- it would be good for his intellectual development, he built rationales, okay Kedivrei, Kedivrei HaKasuf, as it says in the verses, Batera Isha that the woman saw that it was good okay, what's the point over here the point over here that Rav Meshachayim is making is a very interesting point, Rav Meshachayim is saying that when Adam Arishan and his wife approached this particular act of eating from the tree, there was a rationale involved. It wasn't as if they approached the tree and they said, we know it's wrong, but we're doing it anyhow. There was a rationale. It's good, it looks good, it smells good, it tastes good, it will enhance my intellectual and spiritual development. And eating and drinking over here doesn't mean in the literal sense, which Lozado is going to talk about later on. It meant spiritually. They had a rationale. Why is Rav Moshe pointing that out? I mean, it's significant to know that most things are usually done with rationales. And there's a, there's, a, there's a positive side to that and there's a negative side to that. There's a positive and a negative to that, which I'm going to discuss soon. But why is Rav Moshe pointing out that there was a rationale? 
Well, why Rav Moshe Chaim is pointing out that there was a rationale is for this reason. If there's a rationale, that means that the rationale becomes the thing that the person will have to unlearn. That is the thing that the person's going to have to unlearn. In other words, I set myself up. God says, don't do this. But I give, I give reasons, one, two, three, and four, and five, why I think it should be done. So the reasons that I give, one through five, with all of the rationales, then become the parameters of my learning pattern. God said, don't. And I say, yes. And I say yes for reasons one, two, three, and four, and five. So now I have established for myself a learning pattern. I don't agree with God because of one, two, three, four, and five, and therefore I will act against what I was told. Now, ultimately, I will have to undo all of those rationales. Experience and different things happening in my life will now have to occur, will have to be brought into play in order to undo all of the rationales by which I did the act. In other words, when somebody does something wrong, what Rav Meshachayim Latzat is pointing out over here is, yes, there's the negative act itself, but there is also something else. All of the rationales that I built to create for myself my own little worlds outside of God. Now, once I do that, that I build my own little world with my rationales, now God will have to bring into my life, in the long term or in the short term, things that will explode all of those rationales that built that shell. Do you follow what I'm saying? So, so... Yeah, things of that nature. So, so it's not only, it's not only the question, it's not only as we see it simply, I do something wrong, so God's gonna straighten me out. I did something wrong and He's gonna smack me in the face for doing something wrong. It's much more sophisticated than that. When Adam Arishan moves in and does something, there is a physical act, but there is also a philosophical statement being made. Certainly in Adam Arishan's case, where he had such direct contact with God, and such deep understanding, if he can go away from it, he has to be able to go away with it with a very sophisticated kind of uh, a, a belief in order to, in order to um, justify veering away. So now what Rav Moshe Chaim says, the sophistication of going away will now demand a very tailor-made, custom-made uh, life, life that God will now have to present to this person to slowly try to explode all of these rationales that the person has built. Because, because it, without taking away the rationales, you haven't taken away the source for the behavior. Right? Now what, um, now what uh, Lozado points out is that the rationales that other Mauritian built were the rationales which run exactly the opposite of God's uniqueness, of God's oneness. Because how else can I do that which God told me not to do if I, unless I build rationales that God is not unique, that God is not exclusive in his decision-making process. So all of the rationales that other Mauritian builds are rationales that run in the face of God's uniqueness and exclusiveness. So what will God now have to do? God will now have to bring into other Mauritian's life or subsequently into the history of the world all kinds of events that will try to explode those rationales and build the exclusiveness and the uniqueness that other Mauritian was struggling with and couldn't accept initially. This is what Rav Meishachayim Litzat is pointing out over here. 
Now, <clears throat> I wanted to. Um, I wanted. I made mention parenthetically, and this is really parenthetically. I made mention to the fact that when a person does something wrong, he usually builds a rationale for himself. And there's a there's a positive side to this, and there's a negative side to this. There are two sides to this. Right? The uh, the the positive side that exists to this, the positive side that exists to this, is that the person is not in in a spiteful conduct. He's not in a rebellious conduct. Right? He tries to build. In other words, he tries to build a rationale that's a justification. Why is he trying to build a justification? He's trying to build a justification because there is an, a sense of inner conflict that he can't live with. In other words, there is inner conflict. I know that it's not right, so I have to try to build a justification that I won't be tormented by the inner conflict. Okay. Now I take questions at the end. I have to. I have to. Um, I. I'm struggling with inner conflict, and therefore I build the rationale. Now the very fact that I'm struggling with inner conflict, and therefore I have to build a rationale to diminish the the pain of the inner conflict. Right. That's a very good sign, because the morale explains in the concepts of tshuva that how does a person ever come to do tshuva? because there was a part of the person there's a part of the person that was always in conflict with the act not enough of the person to to decide not to do it but it, part of the person was in conflict in other words the very fact that before I did it I was struggling should I do it or shouldn't I do it is it right or isn't it and the fact that after I do it the first few times I even feel a little bit bad about it and guilty about it the morale says that's very good because that means that when I did what I did, I didn't really do it wholeheartedly. There was a part of me, though it was a minority, and therefore it didn't rule in the final decision-making process, but there was at least a part of me that resisted. The morale points out that the process of tshuva is where that little minority that resisted begins to grow. But if there wouldn't have been any minority even a little part of me, a percentage of me that was in conflict with it, right? so then it would be very difficult to begin a tshuva process. I did it wholeheartedly. I didn't have one ounce of a qualm when I did it. I didn't think twice about it. That kind of a tshuva is much more difficult to do. While on the other hand, if there was a measure of inner conflict, if there was a measure of resistance, right, that's where the tshuva begins. Because as the person gains insight or learns from experience, it links itself up with that minority inner conflict that I had and it builds it. And when it becomes big enough, it, it then begins the tshuva process. So when we confront in our own lives the situation of having to work, our minds work speedily to try to create rationales for ourselves, or we see in other individuals that we're trying to help that they are building rationales for their behaviors, there is a positive side to that. The positive side to that is that there's an indication that there's something alive in the person that's in conflict that needed the rationale. Right? So there is a positive side. There is, though, on the other hand, also a negative side. Because if the person feels that he's a tzaddik in his behavior, and he feels very justified in his behavior, so he holds on to that for dear life. 
And, uh, in other words, the person that knows he did something wrong but just couldn't control himself, right? So you have an in to the person. You did something wrong, you're out of control, you have to start learning to, to, to develop control. What can you do to... He knows that he's weak. He knows, he knows that he's been conquered in this particular situation, right? Because he knew that it was out and out wrong. On the other hand, the person that builds a rationale can build such a sophisticated one that you have, might have to do a lot of talking to talk him out of what he justified himself. Right? So each one has a, a positive and a negative to it. But that's parenthetical to our discussion. Right? I'm just saying in general, certainly when we're dealing with other people where they throw at us a lot of justification, we shouldn't be threatened by that. We should look at it as a positive sign. Because the very fact that the person is putting up rationales is an indication that there's an inner conflict, there's an inner struggle. I mean, and I found, not in this group, because this is a, you know, somewhat of a different type of a group, but I have found very often that the person that comes into a group with both fists up is the one that is sometimes closer to making changes than the one that just comes in and goes, uh-huh, uh-huh, at everything that I say. It's usually the person that comes in like this, you know, not physically like this, but, you know, feels like that, that usually uh, there's a lot cooking inside. And he's, he's putting up his last resistance, or he's, you know, he's, he's fighting that inner conflict itself. So we don't have to be taken aback when we see something of that nature. In any case, coming back over here, what Rav Meshachem Litzat is saying is, other Mauritian built a rationale. The rationale went directly opposite the concepts of uniqueness of and exclusiveness. So now God, because of the rationale that other Mauritian has built, has to now custom make circumstances for other Mauritian that will try to explode the fallacies. But exploding the fallacies is a learning process because that which I wasn't ready to accept and therefore became the breeding ground for all of the rationales, now through the circumstances of Adam Mauritian's life, he comes to learn that which he didn't want to accept and built rationales not to accept before. So that's a learning process. It's a learning process where I'm unlearning premises that I've established. But it's a learning process, and a very deep learning process, sometimes a very painful one, because we sometimes expend a lot of time and energy in the premises that we've established. But it's a learning process. It's not to say that it's not a learning process. This is what, and let's see it inside now. The nimtza, the last words of the paragraph, the last two lines of the paragraph. The nimtza shahayaroa miyachi yesh makum litaschas v'shalom. Adam Arishan definitely saw moments before he made his decision that he was entering in a decision-making process in which he might be making an error. He knew that. If he was, he was sure, he wouldn't have even had a struggle about it. He knew that he was entering into an area that he might be right, he might be wrong. So when he finally makes his decision, what is he doing? He's committing himself to one, to one platform. Once he commits himself to one platform, if it happens to be the incorrect one, he is now saying, I've got to learn. I mean, he doesn't realize that he's saying that because he thinks he's right. But the very fact that he commits himself to one particular platform immediately opens up a whole learning experience that is unique to the platform that he has established for himself. 
Vilomar, and what other Marushan is essentially saying, either that he believed in two in two domains, or any of the other false beliefs and any or any of the other false beliefs that the Nachash, that the serpent that the serpent presented for him. Now let me explain what he means by this. I'm not going to get into this in great depth, but he alludes to certain mistakes that other Mauritian made. Okay? And I'll just explain it a little bit because it's a, it's a, it's a very it's a very very important point. We touched upon it if it wasn't last week, it was a couple of weeks ago. What was other Mauritian? What, what did we say that other Mauritian built a rationale and that determines a certain learning process that he's going to have because of the rationales to explode the premises of his rationale. Fine. I dealt with it last week. That's why I don't want to go over it again. Excuse me? I don't want to review it again because we went very specifically into it last week. Yes. It's Rav Dassler's idea. I'll be a little bit more specific because I'll give you a certain idea when he refers to Shtei Rishuyas, to the two to the two domains. Let me explain. The the notion, okay, the notion that um, when God says you can have, that that's acceptable. But when God says you can't have, that's not acceptable. That's a part of God that I don't want to to deal with. Right? In other words, you can eat anything in the garden. That's the, the giving of God. You can't eat from one tree. That's the not giving. Right? That's the not giving of God. Right? Now, we pointed out a number of weeks ago, if I'm not mistaken, that man has difficulty with not getting, with restriction, with, with that which we, we, we perceive as holding back. Right? We're impatient. Unless we immediately see that the holding back is for some benefit, we can't accept it. Right? Now, essentially, uh, dealing with that, on, not on our level, but on Adamarishan's level, that's a very theological uh, debate. In other words, God's chesed, I can see. God's din, I cannot see. I cannot accept. God's justice. God's constraint, God's discipline, God's self, the God's uh, demand for control. I can't accept that. Okay. So Rav Meshachayim alludes to something over here. Right. There was a philosophy that went so far as to say that there was a God of love and there was a God of justice. Two different gods. There was a God that all he did was give, 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 and there was another God that was a louse that was very restrictive in nature. He was, he was the god of revenge, he was the god of justice, he was the god, you know, and, and you hoped that you could appease the god of justice and revenge and be on the good side of the god of giving. Now, I'm saying it very simplistically and it sounds very ridiculous, right? But there was, in, in, in past beliefs, this belief of gods and appeasing certain gods and bringing thanksgivings to other gods the notion of the notion that there are two separate gods there are two separate, uh, there are two separate realms that control the world right? and when good things happen it's because the god of good is in control and when bad things happen it's when the god of bad is in control and when we get a mixture it's when they're both, they're both in there together you know, well, they're fighting with each other and one wins and one loses. I mean, I'm saying it very coarsely, but believe it or not, there used to be beliefs of this nature. Now, excuse me? Is there 
All right, I'm not c- totally familiar with all of with all of the with all of the terms, but these things did exist. So, Adamarishan being able to look at the God of good and not to be able to look at the God of restriction, Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata definitely bordered on this kind of a philosophy. Right? It definitely bordered on this kind of a mistake. The inability to be able to look at God in totality might in other Mauritian situations said, yes, God, I believe that God is both, but I can only relate to one part of it. But it starts there. But where it ends is that you try to divide it and you try to make two separate gods because you can't live with the contradiction or what seems to be a contradiction of God's good and God's bad or God's giving and God's holding back. So because you can't live, you can't reconcile the, the good and the bad together, it starts off with only looking at one part of God. But where does it end? It can end in splitting it totally and making two separate gods out of it completely as it happened, that it was split apart. Now, this... You know, we think uh, that we don't have. I know, in other words, we have problems. Okay, we have. We everybody has at least on emotional and psychological levels have problems with dealing with the restraint and the constraint and the justice and the punishment. We all have problems with that. Okay, but we certainly wouldn't diagnose the problem that we have with it, or most of us wouldn't wouldn't diagnose the problem to the extreme of, of, of seeing it as two rishuyais, as seeing it as two different domains. One God that controls all good things and one God that controls all bad things. We don't necessarily see it that way on a theological level. But I dare say that in, on many practical levels we do see it that way. And I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. And I'm, I'm not, I don't mean to make any kind of an indictment but on many behavioral levels we do function that way <coughs> and let me explain let me explain one, one, particular, one particular case um, because of what seems to be failures in terms of spiritual challenges in our, in our own lives and we all have them life is full of ups and downs successes and failures we can come to believe, certainly if our failures are in greater multitude than our successes, we can come to believe that the Yetzirah, the negative inclination, is a monster, it's out to destroy me, and, and so on and so forth. And I can look at it in a very negative kind of a way. Okay? While in fact, the, the true perspective of negative inclination, the true pers- Jewish perspective is... That, that God created that too. And that's a functioning tool in God's world. It was created to create challenge, to create growth. Yes, very often we don't rise to the challenge and we suffer from it. And it's a true stumbling block instead of an educational tool to become bigger and greater and stronger. It's true. But the true way of looking at the Sahara is a stepping stone a very difficult stepping stone, a very difficult step on the ladder. But it is intended to challenge us to grow. And that's why, as I mentioned uh, a long time ago, when God looked at the end of creation and he saw that everything wasn't just good, but very good, the Talmud says very good refers to the negative inclination. So, 
when what's God's view of evil? What's God's view of the negative inclination? God's view of the negative inclination is I'm responsible for that too. That's all part of the system. It doesn't stand outside of the system. It's part of the system. Now, we ourselves <coughs> have difficulty in accepting that because since we very often can suffer from the phenomena of the possibility of evil because we fall prey to its, its, its enticement and we don't use it as a unified and you know, in, an integral part of our growth process, we perceive it as a separate entity. We see it as a separate entity. And we do view it Stereo, either in the stereotype fashion or to ourselves as a monster, as a demon, as something that's out to get me, as something that's out to destroy me, and why is God against me, and why is God sending so many, so, so much junk into my life, and so on and so forth. So, on a behavioral level, on an emotional level, we do see the Yetzirah as a different Rishus, as a different domain. In other words, we, we give it we give it its own realm of existence. We see that it's out to destroy me instead of to help me. Seeing it as out to destroy me as, as opposed to out to help me ultimately is in fact making a statement. There's the, there's, the, there's the world of wholesomeness and fulfillment and then there's another domain that's trying to suck me in and trying to destroy me. Right? And that would be an example of the Shtei Rishuyos. Um, that he, he's alluding to. Um, let me give you um, an example. Let me share with you an example of this Shtei Rishuyais. Okay, not the Shtei Rishuyais that I just discussed in terms of seeing the Yetzirah as a separate entity as opposed to part of a whole formula, but going back to the first thing that I mentioned. The, the notion that I can look at the God of Chesed, but I can't look at the God, I can't look at the God of Din. I can't look at the God of, of Judgment. Um, if one studies Avram's life, Avram Avinu's life, very carefully, one comes to realize that Avram's life, and this is written about very much in Kabbalistic literature, the Shalah speaks about it a lot, that Avram's entire life was to undo, was to undo the theological avera, the theological transgression of Adamarishan. In fact, Avram in our literature is referred to as Adam Hagadol. He's referred to as the same way as first man, but Adam Hagadol. And our literature tells us that Avram, Avram began the mission of undoing, not necessarily the Aveira itself of Adam Harishan, but the theological implications of the Aveira of Adam Harishan. How? So there are some very fascinating ways in which this is done. Firstly, and this comes, this is very thematic to Rosh Hashanah, and let me, allow me to, 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 to show the connection here, how it's thematic to Rosh Hashanah. Um, Rosh Hashanah celebrates the creation of man. The beginning of creation was really not on Rosh Hashanah. The first day of creation was six days earlier. 
The sixth day of creation corresponds to the day of Rosh Hashanah. On 25 days in the month of Elul, God began creating the world. Six days later, on the first day of Tishrei, was the creation of man. So Rosh Hashanah is not a celebration of the beginning of creation in the literal sense, but, the, it, but it's the birthday of man. And it's celebrating the birthday of man. That's what Rosh Hashanah is. Now, we know that Rosh Hashanah being the birthday of man, it means that what we're celebrating is the greatness of man, the opportunities of man, the, creati the creativity of man. That's what Rosh Hashanah is all about. But at the same time, and that's what makes the day holy. You know, every yuntif is holy because of a spiritual gift that was given to the world. On Pesach it's redemption, on Shavuos it's Torah, on Sukkot it's protection. But each holiday had a spiritual gift that makes the days holy and that's what makes it into a holiday. What was the gift of Rosh Hashanah? What was the gift of the day of Rosh Hashanah? What was the spiritual present that was given to this world on the day of Rosh Hashanah? Man and the neshama of man. That's the spiritual gift that makes the day of Rosh Hashanah holy. Now, at the same time that Rosh Hashanah is the beautiful day that it is in terms of its holiness because of the spiritual gift of man with his neshama, we also know that it was the day of man's downfall. Because on the very day that man was created, man sinned. So there seems to be a tremendous paradox in the day of Rosh Hashanah. It's the day of his greatness. It's also the day that symbolizes his weakness. There is a very peculiar mixture there. Now, I'm not going to go into how we resolve that peculiar mixture. I, did this, I dealt with this in the holiday series. There's a, whole, there's a whole share on how to deal with this peculiar mixture. But because there is this peculiar mixture, there are certain things that we do on the day of Rosh Hashanah to try to close the gap between celebrating the greatness of man and the weakness of man simultaneously. One of the things is that we blow shofar, and the blowing of the shofar is to commemorate Akedas Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac, in which Abraham and Isaac took part, because there was a connection of the ram's horn there, because after Avram showed his willingness to sacrifice Isaac, God said, take him off the altar, and the ram whose horns is meshed up in a bush over there is intended to be the sacrifice. So we take the shofar, we blow the shofar, and this is supposed, I'm saying it very simplistically, it's, very, it's much deeper than that, this is supposed to remind God of Akedus Yitzchak, of the binding of Isaac. And we want to remind God, in particular, of the binding of Isaac on the day of Rosh Hashanah. Why? Why the binding of Isaac more than anything else? So one of the reasons which is given, which is a very fascinating reason, is because what was Adam Arishan's sin? On a theological level, Adam Arishan's sin was, I can look at a God of loving kindness, I cannot accept a God of judgment. I can't. And, the, and, and it was on that basis that he fell. And he wasn't able to listen to God and he ate from the tree that he was told not to eat. What did Avram Avinu do by the Akedah? Avram Avinu was the personification of love and of giving. And now God comes to Avram Avinu and says, you have to sacrifice your son. 
which meant that there would be no continuity to what Avram did in terms of giving, that when Avram would die, there would be nobody to continue the loving kindness and the giving in the way that he had taught the world. And the whole act of taking life is not an act of loving kindness. Right? The willingness of Avram to, to put aside the, the, the uh, relating to God only out of love and to understand that he has to relate to God also to the God of justice, to the God, to the God that we don't necessarily always comprehend, the God of constraint, the God of restriction, the God that has within the development that he understands for man that there is a, a certain amount of discipline that's necessary. That was the challenge of Avram. So what we do on the day of Rosh Hashanah is we say that though on the day of Rosh Hashanah we are dealing simultaneously with the greatness and the weakness of man. But we have a way of living up to the greatness of man because we have an Avram Avinu that worked to undo the theological, the theological, theological transgression of Adam. In other words, in other words, we're not rooted in the in the weakness of Avram because we already have the 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 ancestry that dealt and was challenged with. With, with that particular thing and understood that the two things have to come together. Right? Now this comes up in many other ways as well. Let me point out just one more example which is, which is um, a very vivid example of the same idea. Avram Avinu gets up one day finds out that God is ready to destroy his dome right? and prays. Maybe there will be 50 righteous people maybe 40, maybe 30 and the merit of those save those cities. Right? Now, what was that on Avram Avinu's part? It was a tremendous act of loving kindness. He didn't want that these, the, the, these cities should be destroyed. Right? So what was he doing? He was beseeching God's aspect of loving kindness. That's what he was doing. He was praying that God should demonstrate loving kindness and forgive these people in the merit of these tzaddikim, in the merit of these righteous people, however you understand it. So what was he doing? He was trying to engage the God of loving kindness. Nevertheless, for whatever reason, which we're not going to go into now, God determined that there was no way in the world that loving kindness could be extended to these people and the cities were destroyed. For whatever reason, which is not the, the issue right this moment. What does the verse say? It says, Vayakam Avram Babaiker that Avram got up the very next morning and he davened Shachris from the same vantage point that yesterday he looked at undestroyed cities and today he was looking at destroyed cities. Now what was the point of Avram standing in prayer the day after destruction from where he was able to see the destruction? What was the, what was the point of that? And we learn halachas from there. We learn specific laws from there. We learn from there that a person should find one place in the shul and he should have that place as his place to daven. He shouldn't just run around every day a different place in the shul. So we even learn something from it. But what was the point of it? The point of it was that Avram Avinu understood that though yesterday he was praying to a God of loving kindness, and seemingly today, how can I pray from the same place? Because... I saw a destruction between yesterday and today. Avram Avinu understood that it's one God. It's not two different gods. It's one God. 
And, and whatever God is doing, though it might be difficult to understand and it might be difficult to absorb the justice of God, it's not in contradiction with God's love. But God's love sometimes, and this is very difficult for us to accept, sometimes demands judgment, sometimes demands the discipline, sometimes demands the control. So the point of Avram going back and praying at the particular pace where he beseeched his loving kindness and today saw God's justice was again this unity, this, this bringing together, this bringing together of the chesed and the din, bringing together the loving kindness and the din. There are many, many examples of, of this you know, of this, of this concept of bringing these things together. Uh, I'll take some questions. Yeah. Uh, this all happened on the first day, uh, the sixth day of creation. Uh, the way the Torah tells it to us, yes, it happened on the on the day of creation. Excuse me. Um, I would have to look specifically to know, but uh, but the Talmud draws draws it out of out of out of the, the various sequences. It happened on the on the Perkei de Rebbe talks about it, and the Perkei de Rebbe substantiates it with sources. I mean, there's there. I don't know if I had the opportunity to share it with you, but there is a whole relationship of Adam Arishan, um before his sin, after his sin and the chemistry of Shabbos coming immediately after his sin. There's a tremendous significance, there's a relationship of Shabbos coming after the sin. Um, I don't know if I should get off, it, off on it or not. Um, let's first go one, one or two more paragraphs, and then we'll come back to this. If we have time, we'll come back to this, because it's a very fascinating thing. V'amnam adam arishin ve'emes chachem gadol haya. Now, if we would now here, if Moshe Chaim Litzata is saying a very, very dramatic statement, and this is what our whole discussion last week was about, I just pointed to the fact that there was a theological error that was made on Adam Mauritian's part. He couldn't of both of them together. So, what would a person say? A person would say, maybe Adam Arishan couldn't conceive of those things together because he couldn't, intellectually, he couldn't understand it. In other words, there was, there was, a, um, there was a limit to his extent of understanding. In other words, it was, an intellectual, it was a, an intellectual deficiency, obviously a very sophisticated intellectual deficiency, but there was something missing on an intellectual level. So Lazaro says, you're wrong. That's not true. The problem with Adam Arishan wasn't that he wasn't smart. The problem wasn't that he wasn't intelligent. He was a very intelligent person, very smart, a very high spiritual IQ. Uh, he was he was very much in touch. And he could have engaged his wisdom to unravel the conflict that was within him of accepting both parts of God together. And within the parameters of his wisdom, seeing both parts of God as a unified entity was definitely within his grasp. It wasn't something that was beyond his grasp within, within 
the, within his wisdom. Now, what does this mean within his wisdom? Did he understand it? No, he didn't understand it, but that meant he, he had the ability to engage his wisdom to understand it. It wasn't that even if he would try as hard as he could, he wouldn't be able to understand it. It was accessible. In terms of intellect, in terms of wisdom, it was accessible to him. That wasn't the problem. He had within his intellectual capacity to see that that would be opposite of God's directive was false, illusion and couldn't lead to anything good. It was within his intellectual capacity to arrive at that kind of a conclusion. Miklal hara, and that and the fact that I see myself tempted and pulled in that direction, he could have come to the conclusion of realizing that this is the creation of the possibility of evil that God wanted. for the reason of man coming to appreciate the uniqueness of God. And to test and to challenge and to make man grow from the challenge. So that he could have merit. So Adam Arishan could, in other words, the, the, the notion that he couldn't have intellectually understood this or the enticement was so great that he couldn't understand that the enticement was really a form of growing as, a, as opposed to uh, a limitation in God's goodness. No. It was totally accessible. It was within Ardemarishan's reach. He could have seen it for what it was. It's an enticement. It's a growing tool. It's only looking this way because it's trying to entice me. I have to learn a lesson of God's exclusiveness. He could have unraveled this without doing anything wrong. He didn't have to taste it and then realize his mistake. He could have arrived at it Now, and here are the words... So Chachmasai wasn't the problem. His wisdom wasn't the problem. What was the problem? And here are the most be- some of the most beautiful words that are quoted by many, many of Lazaro. Vimhaya Aymed Be'emunasai. If Adam Arishan would have would have uh, tied himself to a measure of trust, Vimhaya Aymed Be'emunasai. And he wouldn't have allowed himself to be, to be persuaded by the urging of the Yetzer. How would he have pushed off the Yetzer? With trust. Not with wisdom, because the Yetzer knows how to get around wisdom. The Yetzer knows how to turn circles around a person and use the person's own wisdom with sophisticated rationales to argue the opposite. Wisdom isn't the answer. Because the Yetzirah knows how to access wisdom too and use the wisdom and twist and warp and rationalize. So wisdom isn't the answer. So when there's the enticement that's making a major offensive on wisdom, what is my only, what is my, my last form of resistance? So Lazaro says that very eloquently. My form of resistance is Vimahaya Aymeid Ba'amunasai. If he would have standed with a measure of trust. The Yetzirah can turn circles around me with my intellect. So what's my only form of defense? My only form of defense is, listen, I don't know. Okay? The Yetzirah is making a lot of sense. But I trust that what God told me has to be for my good. So what is trust doing? Trust is circumventing the intellectual process on a provisional basis. In other words, intellectually, the Sahara might be able to spin circles around me. But I'm not going to let that happen because I'm not going to go up that channel for now. 
And that's the point that Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata is making. The point that Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata is making is that it wasn't a deficiency in intellect. Adam Arishan was very smart. And because he was very smart, the Yetzirah was able to spin a circle within his intellect. To be, a, to, to, be able, to be able to get him to do what he wanted him to do. So what's the answer? If you can conquer, if you can conquer the Seichel, so what is the answer? So Rav But what would he have done the opposite? He would have, stray, he would have held strong in his heart. Belibai. In his heart, he would have held strong this belief that what God tells me to do is ultimately for my good. Then it would have been considered Then it would have been considered that provisionally he reached the concept of God's exclusiveness through the bridge of trust and he would have ultimately even come to appreciate it. Because he already lived through the experience of being tempted to do the opposite of God. And he even understood a good rationale for doing the, the negative. And if he would have held strong and he would have said, it can't be, and I have to listen to God, what he would have been doing, he would have been incorporating everything into a one world. In other words, I'm being tempted to do something which is wrong, and I know that the temptation itself comes from God. And therefore, I will trust God, and I won't deviate from what God is saying. I won't recognize the enticement as a separate thing. I won't accept it as a separate thing, but I'll accept it as part of God's formula. God's doing something with me. God wants me to be enticed. But the thing that will be foremost is the trust in God. Vihine. Now listen to this, because this is unbelievable. Vihine, behold, it would have been sufficient if Adam Arishan would have been able to contend with this challenge of trust. Not to transgress what God told him. And it only had to be to the evening of Shabbos. He was hours away from it. As our sages teach it to us, so in those few hours of trust on Adam Arishan's part, he would have accomplished what it is now taking us close to 6,000 years to accomplish in coming to trust God. It's unbelievable. I mean, we don't... I mean, from this... In other words, what is, what is Lazaro saying here? Lazaro is dropping a bomb. Lazaro is saying that what Adam Arishan didn't accomplish by those few hours of trust that were necessary now becomes the elongated history of the world to slowly, through all of the different paths that we travel, to come to realize God's oneness, God's exclusiveness, that after everything is said and done, God was right and I was wrong. I mean, I mean to, 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 you know, to, to understand, you know, to sit, to see the extent of the difference in learning patterns. One learning pattern would have done it in three hours. But because Adam Arishan was stubborn, it's going to take thousands of years. Now, it didn't have to take thousands of years. Right? It didn't have to take thousands of years. But history repeats itself. And as Adam Arishan was stubborn, so too man has repeated that stubbornness. And because man has repeated that stubbornness, we're constantly in this process. 
as I once mentioned and, and also a good while ago that we won't get to appreciating Yaakov until we're finished with Esav Yaakov was born holding on to the heel of Esav and we explained that symbolically that means is that we're going to have to play with every part of Esav and prove to ourselves that it's nonsense and nobody else can tell us that it's nonsense until I know for sure for myself through my own experience I'm not going to listen to anybody else's advice and that's why Yitzhak was very pained when he saw that Yaakov was holding on to the heel of Esau because he knew that symbolically what it meant was that the world was destined to a learning pattern that they were determined only to learn through their own experience and that's a very long process a very long a very long process so this is the drama okay I'll take questions in a minute I know this is very shocking but this is the the the, this is um, you know um, there are a lot of questions what would have been if Adam Arishan you know would have passed the test what would the world have looked like okay there are a whole bunch of questions in that direction which are not as significant Okay, there's, there, there is discussion about it. Desla talks about it. Uh, but those questions are not as significant as, as, as realizing um, how much a person can grow from trust. From, from the number of hours of trust that other Mauritians have to have, granted it was a very, very intense struggle for other Mauritians, as I explained last week, because since he was so great, he felt totally humiliated in the presence of God and he didn't feel any self-expression and so on. So it was very, very intense. But you can get an idea from this parallel of if he would have done that act of trust to Leil Shabbos Kaidish, he would have accomplished in those hours what mankind is trying to accomplish in 6,000 years. One can know one thing, that trust is a tremendous building block in terms of spiritual growth. Right? And that can be understood on many, many different levels. On psychological levels, on spiritual levels. We can deal with this on many, many li- levels. Why it is so. That trust uh, opens up so, such an extent of g- spiritual growth. Why it does. In the absence of it, we need other learning patterns, which are very long and painful learning patterns. But why trust is such a powerful tool has many, many different reasons, psychologically, spiritually. It has many reasons which we can get into. But that's the extent of how big tr- the, uh, this aspect of trust is in terms of spiritual growth. Let's finish up the paragraph and then we'll get into discussion. In the end, God would have showed Adam Arishin at on Shabbos after a few hours of trust, God would have showed Adam Harishan, Marilo Bepoeli would have showed him in actuality, He would have showed him that that which he only did provisionally on trust, he would have reached the level of certainty and truth if he would have been able to exercise the trust. This is what I was speaking about last week, that the act of trust isn't forever and ever. After I'm willing to, to, to work with trust for a while, I do reach the level from trust to truth, where I actually see it as true. I don't only have to believe it is true, but I see it as true. And this is what I, he's pointing out. And since he would have reached this level, not of believing that it's true, but knowing that it's true, there wouldn't have been a Yetzirah anymore to deal with. Because how could I be tempted to a negative inclination if I know that it's like burning myself up in a fire? 
I can only be tempted to the negative inclination when I could attach to it some good. But if I can't attach any good to it because I'm 100% positive that doing this is like putting my hand into a fire, there wouldn't be any enticement. No Yetzirah. Right. Now, what would the world have looked like is, is, a, is a very complicated discussion, which Rav Desla talks about. Now, Abel, let's finish this paragraph. This paragraph completes it. Abel, Adam Arishan is Adam was sucked in into the desire and into the lust that he had. And after he was sucked in, then he had to build for himself the rationales. Okay? Many of us think that we have the rationale, we build the philosophies first, and then the philosophies then allow the Tava to come into existence. In other words, first I don't believe in God, and once I don't believe in God, then I don't need, I don't have to have any morality. Lazaro says it's nonsense. That's not the way it goes. It starts the other way around, but we might not be conscious of it. It starts from a desire uh, of not wanting the restrictions or the responsibilities of morality. And in order to be able to justify it to ourselves, we then build philosophies around it. There's a tremendous depth of wisdom in what Lozado is saying. Lozado is saying, first he was driven by his taiva. Then he built for himself philosophies. This is why, by the way, in the third portion of the Shema, it says that a person shouldn't run after his eyes and his heart. Don't run after your heart and don't run after your eyes. That's what it says in the third portion of Shema. So the Talmud says, what does it mean, don't run after your heart? So it says, This means false philosophies. And means the running after things that are provocative and get you involved in immorality. Okay. So, Rav Elchanan Wasserman asks the following question. Don't run after your heart. So the Talmud says, what does it mean, don't run after your heart? So the, uh, the Talmud says, it means don't run after false philosophies. So Rav Elchanan says, I don't understand. A person that has a false philosophy is a free-thinking individual, very broad-minded, maybe too broad-minded. Uh, he's, he's warped in his thinking process. So if the Torah wants to tell us not to run after false philosophies, it should say, don't run after your logic, don't run after your mind, don't run after your head. Why does the Torah say, don't run after your heart? So Rebbe Hanan says, you don't understand, there's nothing wrong with the intellect of man. The pure intellect of man, without any strings being pulled, without anything playing on the intellect of man, man would find God. The trouble with the intellect is that it becomes colored by the heart. And the heart makes the seichel think and speed ahead in all kinds of rationales to legitimize that which the heart wants. The mind is not free of being influenced by the heart. But the problem is not in the seichel. There's nothing... Logically, there's a God. And logically... There's a reason for creation, and logically there is a purpose to creation, and logically there are all the conclusions of God's expectations of man. Our inability to see that is not because there's anything wrong with the, that it's not logical on an intellectual level. It's very logical. But the heart doesn't allow the mind to function in an objective way. So therefore, when the Torah says, don't run after false philosophy, the Torah runs after the, where the root of the problem is. 
the root of the problem isn't in the mind the root of the problem is in the heart so what the Torah t- says when the Torah says don't run after false philosophy the Torah says make sure to be as objective as you can and leave your own desires out of it keep your heart out of it when you investigate right? keep your heart out of it and the Gemara says very vividly the Gemara says that there were generations where the, the Jew worshipped Avodah Zarah great generations we don't understand altogether what it is because there was, an inc- there was a desire for idol worship like there's a desire for sex today which is something which is totally nonsensical to us but that's because they destroyed the inclination for idol worship there was a period of time that the high court of the Jewish people asked God to remove the, incl- the inclination of Avodah Zarah. There's a whole discussion about this in the Talmud. So we don't comprehend it because we're leaving, living post the destruction of that Yetzirah. So we can't understand it. But the Gemara says when it did exist, I mean, Jews were intelligent people. They didn't believe that something that was made out of stone was a god. So uh, wh- what's with them? So the Gemara says, Avdu Avodah they didn't worship idols except because they needed a permission for immorality. And God tells you what to do and bugs you and gives you a guilty conscience. A stone doesn't say anything to you. You know, it's like this, this poem about how good a teddy bear is. You know, it, it doesn't complain when you make a mess. It listens to you. It doesn't talk back to you. You know, so the idol, the idol was very convenient. You could have a form of worship. You could you could rationalize that you were being spiritually connected, but you didn't have to. You didn't get any feedback. You didn't get anybody talking back to you or making you feel guilty. It was wonderful. It was the teddy bear. It was the teddy bear relationship. All right. Now, and this is what our sages say. The only reason why the Jew worshipped idols was because he wanted to be able to flagrantly commit immorality without a guilty conscience. And in that sense, Adam Arishan was a min. In other words, he developed false philosophies to rationalize his behavior. So it wasn't just an act. It became a theological error as well on Adam Arishan's part. And now it becomes necessary for God to show man in, in very obvious ways what that which man didn't want to learn through an educational process. Then it becomes necessary for God to show man what, it, what the true colors of Ra are. You, don't, you didn't believe me, you got involved in it, now you're going to have to learn its true colors to come to appreciate what I told you to, at the outset. And God will show us that even though it is let to become very, very big and very, very powerful, it's ultimately let to do that only for the ultimate purpose of showing God's sovereignty even over it. And this is the difficulty of the world that we have to live in in order to learn this. That was decreed upon him. So that Adam should be able to come to the, to the belief that he did not want to stand with at the beginning. 
but it won't go through trust anymore. Now it's going to already come through experience. It will become clear to him through many different proofs. That which was accessible to him before without the experiences. And that it should all become clear to him and it should all come together all at once. Okay. There is a continuation to this, but before the continuation, I'll take questions if there are questions. Are you saying yes. that uh, when somebody is looking for a husband or a wife, he should leave his heart out? Uh, don't let his heart get involved in the pursuit of a uh, mate? I, I don't. Uh, I hear the question, but I don't know how it follows from what I was, what, what we were learning. Well, you said no, no, no. I don't want to do that. Uh, you're saying that uh, the intellect will solve all the problems theoretically, except that we have complications. Uh, the heart complicates life. Um, so what I hear from you is okay. that. Okay. Uh, Okay, let me give you an example. Okay, let let me give you an example. There's no question. Okay, there's no question that uh, the same way that God created man with the mind, God created man with the heart, and if God created man with the heart, it is intended to be part of 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 the, the person's relationship with God. I mean, if it wasn't intended to be part of the relationship with God, then it doesn't fit into the formula. It's not part of the oneness. And why was it created? So obviously, obviously the heart is a very integral part. The point that, that I'm making over here is that, that while the heart is a very important part, we have to, we have to be careful that the heart doesn't play uh, a trick on us uh, and doesn't warp our, our, our judgment of something. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Two examples. Um, an example in the sense that I meant it and an, an example in terms of finding a partner. Right? Um, a person comes in and uh, I, I, tell, I make a statement um, about something that happened in the 1700s. Something which is somewhat unbelievable, but something that happened in the 1700s. Fine. So, because uh, I, I make the statement of something that happened in the 1700s, uh, he feels very uncomfortable because uh, the particular thing uh, would, would lead him in a certain direction. Right. So he opens up and he starts saying, "How do you know that it that it really happened? How do you know it's true? How do you know it wasn't made up?" So on and so forth, which is a very common thing. Now I don't remember the exact example. Now I'm, I'm running on a couple of hours of sleep, but uh, I proceeded to ask him something about American history, about something with George Washington, um, which is totally accepted. And I asked him, do you believe it? So he said, yes. So I asked him, how do you know? Were you there? Maybe they made it up. And so on and so forth. And but this, that, and the other thing, what came out of the whole discussion was 
that you can't know for sure, but it's probably true, because why would they have made it up and so many people know it? In other words, he said it's probably true. So to which I then showed him that what I said, what the particular thing that I was saying was just as probable. Now, what I pointed up to him at that point was the issue wasn't so much is this as probable as that, but what I asked him was if this is in fact as probable as this, why is there a resistance to one thing and not a resistance to the other? And the answer is very simple. If there is equal probability to two things and one thing I resist nevertheless, and I say, but still, how do I know that it's true? And the other thing I don't say, but still, how do I know that it's true? It's because there is an implication involved. In other words, there's something that I'm going to have to do because of it. And because there's something that I have to do because of it, that I don't want to do, I don't want to accept it, even though it's the same level of probability. And in other areas, I will accept it as true because of the measure of probability. This is an example. This is an example of how a person has to be suspect that maybe his desire is not allowing him to think freely. But that doesn't mean that a person is not supposed to utilize his heart and his intuition and his feelings in the process of understanding God and coming close to God. It just means that he has to be aware, he has to be suspect, he has to be suspect that maybe it's playing a trick on him. But not because he's suspect of it that he should discount it. Quite to the contrary. A lot of our knowledge of God and our intuitiveness of God and our finding God has a lot to do with our heart. Let me give you the same example in a relationship. Okay? Let me give you the same example in a relationship. Uh, you're going out with somebody. Okay? And the person happens to be, besides everything else, happens to be extremely beautiful. Okay? Right? Now, there are certain issues that there are differences, okay? But I can't seem to resolve if the differences are major enough to, that this isn't the right one or not, right? Now, in this kind of a situation, a person has to stand back and ask themselves the following question. If she wouldn't be as pretty as she would be, would those issues be bigger issues or not? Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is the following. One has to be suspect that maybe one is allowing one issue to color another issue. Now, does that mean to say that, that beauty isn't a, 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 a very important part of the relationship? No, it is an important part. But if it will uh, not allow me to see all of the issues that have to be seen, then I have to be careful. I have to at least be suspect that maybe I'm not seeing it carefully enough. The statement that people say that we're so physically involved with each other, it's difficult for us to really make a decision as to who we are and if we're really compatible is a perfect example. But does that mean that the relationship should proceed without heart? No, it doesn't mean that. But it should proceed without it camouflaging an issue, without it distorting an issue. Do you follow what I'm saying? And usually uh, giving it some kind of a litmus test or at least being putting it through the interrogation of suspicion uh, is important. Or to share it with somebody else who can be more objective and to, can, can help you out with it. But it's not to exclude it. Okay. Now, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that the heart should, uh, should be regarded well with some suspicion, so to speak. I mean, could, uh, could be suspect. It should, it, it should be investigated. Let's okay. put it that way. 
suspect sounds very horrible. Logic, the intellect, and that also could be suspect because you can be very logical and yet say something that you can build up a whole world of nonsense, even though you're perfectly, absolutely perfect with your logic. So that uh, seems to me that both of them, the, the heart and the intellect, only can start with the false premise. In other words, what uh, in other words, what Rebbe is saying is that if, if in other words, the, the notion, and this is this is something which is hard to accept because if we haven't gone through the processes ourselves, we, and I include myself in this, it, it's hard to it's hard to believe. But what Rebbe is saying is that there is nothing within the Jewish system of belief that cannot. That cannot be that a person cannot come to through logical process. The notion, okay, the notion that there are things that are in the fundamentals of belief. I'm not talking about not understanding this mitzvah or that mitzvah. But I'm talking about the fundamentals of belief. There is no principle belief in Judaism that cannot be arrived at through a logical process. The notion that we can create all kinds of beliefs that are contrary to, to Judaism. Logically, this is what Rav Elchanan is saying, it's not true. In other words, if Judaism is not a beautiful religion, but a true religion, it has to be borne out by logic. And if you can bear out something that's in contradiction to that belief by logic, that's, in, that's inherently a contradiction to truth. Basically, uh, our belief in God uh, is not really a logical thing. It's something that uh, we accept as a matter of belief. Uh, but uh, I okay, let, let me, I, I must dif- I must differ with that. Let, let and let me explain how. Our process might be a belief process because we either don't know the logical sequences or we haven't gone through them or we don't have the ability to go through them. So our process of of, of accepting that might be a process of belief as opposed to a process of logic. But does there exist a logical process to, to, to arrive at the beliefs? Definitely. Rav Sajigayin and Maimonides in the Guide to the Perplexed and the Chavos Halvavos, any major philosopher went through all 13 principles of belief and established them with logic. So they exist by logical equation. Do we necessarily know the equations? Do we have the ability to comprehend them? Do we have all of the intellectual know-how? Have we exposed ourselves to them? Do we even have the need to expose ourselves to all of the logical ones? No. And therefore, our process is a belief process. But because our process is a belief process as opposed to a logical process, that doesn't mean that a logical process doesn't exist. Rav Sajigayin says that there is no principal belief that cannot be proved logically. And he has, he, he, a major part of his book, Amunas Vidaeus, proves it. The Guide to the Perplexed goes through it as well. Now, how, is it ultimate proof or probability? That's a different discussion. But strong power probability, which is also lot. Probability is also logic. Probability is also a process of logic. It's logical to assume something if there's a probability to something. So, out personally, we might not have entered into the arenas of logical process, but that's not to say that they don't exist. They definitely exist. But like this uh, lady said here, uh, if you get to the first, first premise somewhere, there has to be an assumption. Made. We can even say about science, science requires proof. 
Yet all of science is based on at least one assumption that cannot really be proven. It has to be accepted on faith. Uh, the, uh, well, I don't want to go into all the details, but all of science is based on at least one assumption which cannot be proven. So I think that... Yeah, we're, we're talking very generally. And the answer to your question is that even though you have to start at some place, the some place that you start at can have a probability to it. Right? And just as long as it has a probability to it, that's also a lot. An, an assumption which has probability to it is, 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 is logical to make. Okay, I, I'm saying an assumption be, can be a commitment. Uh, when you make an assumption... Oh, I don't mean a commitment. A commitment. I, don't, I don't mean a commitment. I mean that it's, it's, a, it's a logical probability. I don't mean that it's just a commitment, that I'm willing to accept it. I'm not talking about a willingness to accept. I'm talking about something which is probable. And that there's reasonability to it. Yeah. Um, originally, when you started out talking about what you said, that according to the Hongkong, um, according to you, um, when a person decides to take a zero other than that which Hashem wants to take, that ultimately, This is a question that a couple of weeks ago I presented, and everybody was shocked that I presented it. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't recall if you were here or not. But we did. We, we did speak about this question a number of weeks ago, and there there are a whole group of possibilities. There are a whole group of possibilities that are in uh, that uh, in order to answer this question. First of all, in terms of the question, does it always have to? Um, does it always have to entail pain? That's the main part of the question. I understood that that's the main part of the question. Um, it um, going a different uh, going a different way uh, always has to entail at least one form of pain, and that form of pain is the form of pain of the of the frustration of the frustration of um, 
while a person is going those different ways of having lost the opportunities of what he could have benefited if he would have gone the right way. Now let me explain what I mean by that. There are a couple of parts to that. Another is the very fact that I go in a different path than the one that is the most uh, the most beneficial, the most fulfilling, has a couple of has a couple of things happening. That means for as long as I'm going along that path, okay, I'm not in full synchronization with what my life can be for that period of time. Right? For that period of time, I'm not living life uh, to its fullest, right? Because being that I'm 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 spending my time in different paths having fun or whatever have you but one way or the other in the deeper sense of really living I'm not living to the fullest in those periods of time now on conscious levels that not that, that might not be perceived as pain and it might not be perceived as something which is detrimental to me but certainly on the deeper levels of reality the neshama is going through a form of anguish and a, a, uh, through a form of, of uh, distasteful exposure to, uh, to lost opportunity. That's number one. Not un- necessarily unconscious levels of pain, but, but there is something missing there. That's number one for the time of the experience. Number two, there is usually, and this is a very common phenomena, that when a person does look back after they do learn from experience, no matter how much they gain from experience, there is a measure of frustration of why couldn't I have known sooner? Right? And why couldn't have I had this sooner? And time is something that can't really be made up. You know, you can, from the time that you know differently, you can live differently. But you can never turn the clock back and live those moments again the way that you would have wanted to live them. Now, when a person does grow and does look back and see that the way he was living before was missing the mark, right, there, there is um, an unanswerable pain in, in the realization of what I could have had and, it, and it, there's no way of really undoing the past. I can be better for the future, but I can't undo the past. This is why there were great people that every day they did tshuva. Now, what does this mean, every day they did tshuva? Uh, I mean, they did it once, and you're supposed to believe that God forgives. But the the idea was the following, and this is explained very eloquently in the Chalvas Halvavis. Every day they grew closer to God. Every day that they grew closer to God, they realized that they didn't fully appreciate or use the day before. Because not having known it yesterday... I wasn't as motivated and I wasn't connected and I didn't do it with as, as much meaning because it didn't mean so much to me. But today that it means more to me, I look back at yesterday and I say, gee whiz, I could have davened better if I would have known this yesterday. It would have, I would have lived better. And this, why, this is why the constant growth was a constant tshuva process. Now, to answer your question, you know, can it go without pain? It can, it can very well, it doesn't necessarily necessitate physical pain. Uh, is all of the pain and the frustration conscious? Not necessarily. But ultimately, if a person really grasps the difference in his growth pattern, there, it, there is almost an unanswerable frustration with, with, with the past. And that's, that's what, that's the, you know, that's the flaw, that's the hitch, that's the monkey wrench 
in, in that learning process. And that's something that a person has to swallow and say, this, that frustration I have to live with because of my unwillingness to, uh, to, to deal with it along the other learning pattern. And that's, that, that's part of it. Uh, this is also one of the very this is one of the very very complicated areas Adamarishan's tshuva the truth of the matter is that in the Chumash itself there is very little reference to Adamarishan doing tshuva um, the um, the first phenomenon of tshuva seems to be the real authentic first phenomenon of tshuva seems to be with Cain and Hevel. And let me explain that a little bit. Adam had, Adam and Chava had two children, Cain and Hevel. Subsequently, they had Chase and you know and other children. But you know, I don't know if everybody's familiar with the story, but they both brought sacrifices. It was Cain's idea to bring a sacrifice, but uh, he was trying to get away cheap. And uh, Hevel wasn't the initiator of the idea, but once he saw the idea, liked the idea, and brought from the best. Okay, and in the end of the story was that because Cain really wasn't um, into really coming close to God, but was just trying to throw God a bone, his sacrifice wasn't accepted. Hevel's was. Cain became jealous of Hevel and murdered Hevel. Which, by the way, just parenthetically one has to keep in mind what one can do seemingly for religious reasons. Cain was jealous of Hevel's sacrifice being accepted, so therefore he murdered Hevel. You know, that's a very peculiar kind of a thing. And that, that's, you know, that, that's uh, a precursor for what people have done in the name of, of holiness through history. But in any case, without getting into that, that whole issue, uh, God comes to Cain and says, the blood of your brother is screaming out to me from the earth upon which it was spilled, which doesn't mean the blood, but it means the neshama is screaming out to me for the injustice. And essentially, essentially, Cain begs God to, to stay his, 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 his punishment and to forgive him and to at least give him an opportunity to undo some of the damage that he did. He can't bring Hevel back to life again, but to undo it. And God granted, and God granted Cain a certain amount of years. He gave him life, and he gave him protection, that he should be protected, so that he should be able to grow, and that he should be able to undo as much as was possible to be undone. Now, the Medrash tells us, the Medrash tells us that Adam Arishon uh, met up with Cain and after realizing that Cain was granted a stay questioned this you know how, how did it happen and essentially what Cain said was that I did tshuva and God accepted my tshuva and the Medrash says that from this Adam Arishan t- learned a lesson that he too should endeavor to do a tshuva process now before we get to the point of what 
did the tshuva accomplish in Adam Arishan's life? What did it accomplish? In Adam Arishan's life, we have to deal with one issue before that. Right? Why did Adam have to learn from Cain? Why was it difficult for Adam to perceive the concept of tshuva? He didn't want to do tshuva, or he wanted to do tshuva but felt that the tshuva wasn't applicable. What, what, what was the nature of the problem? So the answer to this really lies in what he learned from Cain. Because when Cain spoke to God, Cain said something which is very interesting. Cain said to God, God alavonim and so is my, is my transgression too difficult to carry? 